You're listening to That Jesus Podcast. What is up, everybody? Welcome to That Bad Liturgist Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, joined by my fellow deconstructionalist, Drew Latin. And we are here just to, you know, ask questions. We, we don't want to give any answers. We just want to kind of ask a few questions, explore a few topics, maybe dismantle, you know, some problematic structures, etc. So yeah. thanks for Do joining you know the us, question everyone. I'm asking today, Titus. What is that? What would cause somebody to find a body, or how would a body be found inside a paper mache stegosaur in Spain? What is a, a stegosaur? Dead, it's a kind of dinosaur. Why would there okay. be a dead body in the paper mache leg of a stegosaur statue in Spain? Did said stegosaur statue come to life and consume said body? That would be the reasonable explanation. Occam's razor would dictate that. But since we're living in 2021, there's another even more reasonable explanation. Okay, let's hear it. Is this an actual news story? Yes, it is. The man was most likely in the stegosaur paper mache leg and got stuck there while trying to retrieve his smartphone. That's (laughs) what the police can piece together. So if this is paper mache, how does one get stuck in it? Well, it says the leg of a paper mache statue of a dinosaur in <clears throat> Santa Coloma de Gromene, Spain. So, but isn't paper mache very easily terrible? <laughs> that's a terrible observation. They can make it. They can make it very thick. I guess. That's what okay. I'm thinking about. That's what I'm trying to deconstruct. And I think he is probably trying to deconstruct the paper mache leg. <laughs> Prob- that is a very problematic structure for him. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. So how's your prayer life these days, Drew? Well, between praying for people stuck in dinosaur legs, um, it's not great, but it's going better than, than some, or than it has. I've been doing these short devotionals um, on the YouVersion Bible app with Francis Chan and just going through a study in James. And that's been really kind of reinvigorating for me. Very basic stuff, stuff I grew up hearing in Sunday school, but it's kind of refreshed me and just drawn me to pray, you know, just going through like chapter one of James, which I memorized when I was 14 years old, asking God to give me insight to see the temptation around me. So I actually feel good today, but don't ask me tomorrow. So do you actually use devotionals? I have said, you know, you should chew your own food. You should be a mature Christian and just read the Bible and all that. And as I get older, I am increasingly convinced that reading devotionals is part of being in Christian community. And I don't apologize for it. Well, for me, I consume so much content throughout the day that the last thing I want when I'm trying to be alone with God is to consume more content. But maybe that's just a a personality difference or just the fact that I listen to podcasts as I work a lot. Yeah, I usually do it first thing in the day before I've cluttered my ears full of of whatever jibber-jabber, like our podcast. But Mm -hmm. um, it also, I'm in a different mood. I'm listening really closely and um, not to sound like the token charismatic on the podcast, I listen very like like for spiritual 
for the voice of God in that I'm trying to, to make a connection with God when I'm listening to say, you know, the Holy post or something like that. I'm not primarily trying to make a connection with God. It's more intellectual. Yeah. Well, when they have their butt news, it's probably pretty difficult to connect with the spirit. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so, I get the edited version of it. So I never have to listen to that. So we're here for our, fourth episode in what I have begun to refer to as our 666 series. Did you follow that? I do not have a stutter, unlike our our president. That was all, those were all words um, Uh that were pronounced correctly. You know how, you teach middle schoolers, so you probably know how the word sick is used in a positive way at times. Um, yeah, in like the 90s, dude. <laughs> okay, so, boomer. So the first word in, in my title is sick, and then the next word is six, because we're, we're going to have six of these episodes, which is a lot, because yeah, Drew's I, very I actually interested got in it sex. before you explained it. <laughs> really? You followed the 666 series? Yes, sir. So we're here for episode four of the 666 series. Now, and let's pause for a minute. We did an episode... Are you hearing my wife calling the children? Uh, faintly. Hello, okay. Um, we did an episode with Preston about um, sexual integrity. We did an episode about porn. We did an mm-hmm. episode about um, sexual sexual abuse. abuse. And we did an episode with Abram about same-sex attraction. So this Correct. would be number five. This is five, sorry. Yeah, this is our actually was supposed to be our, our second to last or our last episode, but as I said, Drew is very interested in sex, so he wants to record one more after this one, probably just with Lissle. So I could have saved that whole conversation if you had let me label this. This is the penultimate episode. Penultimate. What does that mean? Like the ultimate pen? (laughs) It means second to last. Penultimate. And and let me talk for just a minute about our second to last episode. Okay. um, Because... We've talked, like I said, we've talked about problems around sex. Um, Although our first episode, we could kind of think of it as being positive, sexual integrity. But we've really talked about what happens with sexuality when it's broken. And Mm -hmm. it's gotten pretty heavy in places, talking about porn, talking about um, sexual abuse. And there's been, I hope there's been hope. I, I trust there's been hope in there too. But I think we would, we would not be doing our dear listeners a service if we ended by just talking about brokenness and sexuality because God's the one who designed sex. And so we're going to try and end on a high note talking about what sexuality is designed for and, and what healthy sex, holy sex looks like. So that's kind of where we're headed with the last episode. Um, I think it's going to be Lissel and I sharing together. And so I'm going to ask, if people have something they'd like touched on, if they have questions, reach out to us on social media or send us an email or whatever and let us know your thoughts or questions, something you'd like kind of wrapped in our final episode as we wrap up. Um, and I'm just really thankful after that sixth episode, Titus, it just feels so good to have this issue settled once and for all, bring all the answers and nobody will really have to Amen. talk about it again because that Jesus podcast covered sex for six episodes. 
For sure. So you're talking about our next episode, not this one, which I guess would be the ultimate episode rather than the penultimate episode. <laughs> very, very good, sir. Yep. Yeah, and Lissa will be joining you for that one. I see her in a rocking chair behind you, which is where women should be. Um, so that's good. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't listen to this. Um, so, but our, but our penultimate episode... Uh, is, is with Dr. Preston Sprinkle once more. And we are talking about transgender, which is, I would say, actually more of a cultural conversation right now than homosexuality. It seems like even like the, the conservative political world has sort of accepted you know, homosexuality and it's not a big deal. Like you have Trump waving a rainbow flag and all of that. Whereas the transgender conversation is creating more controversy these days with, you know, um, transgender women competing against biological women and, you know, children being transitioned very young. Um, it's, it's still very much a, a hot button issue, which is what we're all about on that Gia's podcast. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed, uh, I, I listened to um, Preston's latest book on, on transgender and really enjoyed it. I believe I was demolishing a shed. I was dismantling that structure. And <laughs> I, I listened to the entire book, I think, in one day um, as I dismantled that problematic structure. And like we said in the other interview with Preston, you know, he is someone who captures the grace and truth of Jesus in just such an amazing way. And um, he's just got a lot of wisdom. So in, the, in this upcoming interview, you know, I just tried to kind of tee him up with the questions um, that I knew are, are important and would kind of cue his his wisdom and, and hit all the major points that he went through in the book. So it's a pretty pretty short interview, but it's it's really packed. So I hope yep. everyone listens carefully and definitely go, go grab his book, uh, Embodied, after you listen to it. And we might also feature in, in another conversation with one of our friends. I'm not sure if that will happen or not. But, um, dear listener, as you listen, you will discover that whether or not that, in fact, did happen later this week. Yes. I don't know if you needed to say that, but I think we should turn it over to Dr. Sprinkle now. All right. Let's hear from him. joined again by Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Uh, thanks for coming back on the podcast, Preston. Thanks for having me back on, you guys. Yeah, so today we are wrapping up our series on biblical sexuality and gender, and we're going to be talking today about transgender, one of the, the biggest hot topics in culture today. And Preston, you just wrote a book called Embodied, on this topic that I really enjoyed listening to, and it um, really cleared up a lot of the 
kind of confusion and, and questions around the, the topic. So let's just start with that word itself, transgender. I, I know different people use it differently. Some conservative Christians don't even like using it, especially when talking about Christians. So could you define the different ways people use the word transgender to clear up some of that confusion? That's a that's a great uh, starting point. And yeah, so the word transgender is used in many different ways by many different people. Uh, you ask, you know, 10 different people who identify as trans what it means, and you might get 11 different answers. Um, so on, you know, I like to think in terms of a spectrum. So on one end of a spectrum, you might have somebody who identifies as transgender, and that term, that identity marker is simply a synonym for the fact that they experience what psychologists call gender dysphoria. So I've got a friend, uh, her name is Kat. Uh, she's female. She believes she's female. She doesn't want to change the fact that she's female, but she has experienced gender dysphoria, um, this, this distress um, over an incongruence that she experiences between her, her internal sense of who she is and her biological sex. Okay. So it's a, you know, it's a psychological condition that some people have, um, and it, it's it it has a profound effect on her life. Um, sometimes she goes through the whole day just with this constant buzzing, this humming in the back of her mind, and and anxiety can well up, and you know it, it can be really intense. Um, and so it's a it's a significant part of her life. And so she would say that she's trans, and when she says she's trans, that simply means she is a female who experiences gender dysphoria. I've got another friend who is male, older man, and he says he's trans. And when he says he's trans, he means he believes he is a woman, not wants to be a woman, not I feel kind of feminine, but I believe I am like ontologically, if we can use that word, um, I am a woman. Well, but you're biologically male. I know, but that doesn't determine whether I'm a man or a woman or not. I, I know I'm a woman um, and I'm trans. I'm a trans woman. Um, so for him, trans conveys something much more significant than just I experienced gender dysphoria. It's a it's a profound statement on mm -hmm. his understanding of human nature, of of theological anthropology, of you know, of of biology and and the relationship between the body and the mind and all these things. So um, other people might say they're trans, and if you ask them, you know, can you describe what that is? It, it might simply mean like I don't resonate with certain gender stereotypes. So again, a female might say she's trans and what that, what trans means today might simply be called like a tomboy 10 years ago. You know, I'm, I'm just more, I don't resonate with feminine stereotypes, which is fine. I mean, neither did Jesus <laughs> or no, I mean, no, Jesus didn't resonate with all the masculine stereotypes of his day. David didn't resonate with stereotypes of being a masculine man all the time. So the, Biblically speaking, it's totally fine. You can be a more tomboy girl. You can be a more feminine, stereotypically feminine guy. And if, if you're godly, then you're godly. Um, godliness isn't dependent upon embodying certain cultural stereotypes. So, so, so again, somebody might say they're trans, and it, mm -hmm. it, and they might not even articulate it this way. But if you start asking what this means to them, they might simply be describing the fact that I don't really resonate with these stereotypes. So, if you've Mark Yarhouse, a Christian psychologist, likes to say, you know, if you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. Uh, don't assume that you know what they mean by the term trans. Trans is a super flexible umbrella term that can mean many different things to many different people. Yeah. So you heard it first here today, folks. Preston believes that Jesus and David were trans 
Um, that's what I got out of that model. <laughs> no, start sending the emails. So, there there will be, yeah, you would be, you would be uh, fascinated with how people interpret my words. <laughs> yeah. So if the, if the term is so flexible, if it's, yeah. if it's such a huge umbrella, is it helpful for us or how should we think about the term practically? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and yeah, um, so for my friend Kat, because you could, and, and I'm friends with her enough where I could say, well, then, you know, why do you use this term? She goes, and she said, I, I just, I can't, it's hard for you to describe how comforting it was to know that there was a term that existed that resonated with me. You know, she's also attracted to girls. She's committed to celibacy because she believes in a traditional sexual ethic. Um, so she's not acting on that attraction, but for her lesbian didn't really fit same sex attracted that's part of it but there's just something else here that she tells me having a name that is translatable was so like f- freeing and life-giving for her so that's that's her story not mine you know i still as an outsider to this conversation i don't like personally understand that or resonate with it but i want to try to understand people that do that that having a name a term um is can be helpful now Generally speaking, yeah, I think when anytime language becomes so flexible, so broad, so, you know, defined in so many different ways, I think it can be, un- it can be unhelpful. I mean, to make a, a, a controversial parallel, in some circles, you know, the, t- the term racist is, is so overly used that it almost has lost its meaning. You know, for some people, simply being white in a majority white culture means you're racist, you know, like, you're participating in, you know, uh, spheres of privilege by your very skin color. You know, uh, for other people, racist means you act, you have an explicit disdain and, you know, towards somebody of a different race. Um, those are two very different uses of the term. So, if everybody's a racist, then the term almost loses its 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 significance. Um, so I do think that as things keep progressing and progressing and progressing, as trans keeps getting more and more easily used, um, then I do think it, culturally speaking, it can become less, um, more unhelpful than than helpful. Um, and again, I say I say that as a general kind of approach. And I don't want to take away how it has been helpful for individuals like my friend Kat or, you know, other individuals on on a certain level. So when I read your book, uh, Embodied, it, it really seemed like the crux of the matter in, in this whole discussion is whether or not your biological sex determines your identity as male mm-hmm. or female or whether you're preferred gender identity um, determines that. So maybe we can start with, with defining those two terms, sex and gender, because you talk about how often people confuse those two terms and use them interchangeably. So what what do those terms mean? Um, I know we, yeah. we all know what sex means as far as having sex, but when, when it's used in the other way, obviously. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. The term sex and gender are the most important terms to understand in this conversation. If you don't understand what people mean by these terms, then you're going to be completely lost. (laughs) Um, So up until the 1970s, sex and gender were used as synonyms. Like if you were a biological male or biological female, that was your sex, that was your gender. They they were used interchangeably. In many circles today, they are still used interchangeably. 
But in other circles, people distinguish between sex and gender. Sex being your biological sex. So just, I mean, just scientifically, like uh, Homo sapiens are a sexually dimorphic species. That's it's true as saying the ra- Earth is round and not flat. Although I still get emails from the Flat Earth Society. I don't know how I got on the, <laughs> got on their list. But like like to to say Homo sapiens as a species are sexually dimorphic. That's not a contro- that should not should not be a controversial statement. Although some people think it is. Um, uh, and the terms we use to describe that sexual dimorphism is male and female. So. That's how I use the terms consistently. There are biological males and biological females. If you're human, you're a one or the other. Uh, there's a small percentage of humans who might be a blend of both, who might have what's called an intersex condition. Um, even there, most people with an intersex condition are still clearly male or female, but there are a small percentage of intersex people who might be a significant blend of male and female, um, but still they're a blend of male and female. It's not like there's something else. Like male and female are the two sex categories that exist for humans, homo sapiens. Gender. What is gender? <laughs> um, gender is defined as, you know, your uh, um, the psychological, cultural, and societal aspects of being male and female. So um, that, that can be broken down into like gender identity, which is your internal sense of who you are. Uh, now, for some people, they would say like, who cares what your internal sense is? You're either male or female. <laughs> While other people would say, no, your internal sense of who you are is more significant than just this body that you were born into. So there's different views on the significance of this internal sense of self, which is called gender identity. Then you have like gender roles or, or gender expression. These are like the cultural constructs of masculinity and femininity. So you know, if you saw a human in a pink dress, that would be a a a a feminine presentation. If you saw another person in a suit and tie, that would be more a more masculine presentation, regardless of whether the person in those, you know, uh, in in the dress and suit are a male or female. So you do have these cultural expectations of what it means to be a a man or a woman that is intertwined with these cultural constructs of masculinity and femininity um so i in that sense i do so well i I do think it can be helpful to understand the meaning of sex and the meaning of gender i mean if somebody um has been dead for 100 years we can quickly determine whether they were a male or female just by doing dna sampling in in the bones we don't know if they were masculine or feminine. We don't know what their gender identity was. We don't know if they were non-binary or gender fluid. We don't know how they viewed themselves. We don't know if they had gender dysphoria. Um, so there is just kind of just basic existence in reality that this person is either male or female. Um, but gender can be a lot more complicated, especially when someone's gender identity, for whatever reason, is at odds with their biological sex. And so coming back full circle to the question you raised, it's one I raised in the book, you know, Mm -hmm. if somebody experiences incongruence between their gender identity and their biological sex, then which one are they and why? That's Mm -hmm. the most fundamental question from which everything else flows in this, in this conversation. Yeah. So let's go there. Um, Maybe starting kind of biblically, you know, we, we see these categories of male and female in the Bible. 
were the biblical authors talking about biological sex or were they talking about gender or did they not even think in those terms? Um, they, they were the, the terms male and female, like in Genesis one twenty seven. you know, God created us in his image, male and female. He created them. Um, male and female is referring to biological sex throughout the Bible. Uh, we know that because like animals are also called male and female, like in the ark, they came two by two male and female. Um, this is not talking about the animal's gender identity. Um, this, this is a, a statement about biological sex. Now, does the Bible have a separate term for something like gender in distinction from sex? Not really. And yet the Bible does refer to, it's very aware of the cultural uh, stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. Um, in fact, I would say the Bible explicitly pushes back on some of those st- stereotypes. So in the first century in Judaism, um, it would be expected for a man of marital age to be married and to be fathering children. Like that was, you're not really a manly man until you're married and, and fathering children, which is, and same thing with women until you're kind of married and, and having kids, which is why infertility was a stigma of somebody's masculinity or or femininity so enter jesus a man of marital age who's single (laughs) who isn't fathering children like that was a a a deliberate um pushback against these cultural standards Mm -hmm. of masculinity uh in the greco-roman world and in the roman world a real man is somebody who is dominating another human whether you own a slave or you're having sex with a prostitute or you're, you can be married, that's great, but hopefully you have a few other partners on the side because a real man has needs and can't be met just with one person. So being very sexually active and um, not, not um, caring for the lowly, the marginalized, the outcast, that was a sign of being very unmanly. So um, again, the Christian worldview pushes back against that like crazy. Uh, sexual integrity <laughs> mm-hmm. um, was a value for both men and women, not just women. Um, Caring for those of a lower social status was something that manly men from the Christian perspective should do. So, so yeah, I, I do think on the, on the whole, the Bible is very aware of these cultural constructs of what we would now call gender expression, gender roles, whatever. Um, so while the Bible doesn't use those terms like we do, I think it, the concepts are very alive and well. And so just to summarize, mm-hmm. I think the Bible does... Um, Affirm and celebrate sex difference that God created us male and female, and we are not the same. Um, and yet there's a lot of freedom and how we can live out our sexed identities. So I think we should embrace the fact that we are male or female, but guess what? You can be a, um, a man who, you know, throws stones at giants and cuts off their heads like King David, or you can be a man who, <laughs> writes poetry, cries a lot, and plays a harp like King David, you know? Um, and, yeah. you know, David, he, you can't put him in a box of masculinity or femininity. He kind of acted in ways that were really diverse, and that's okay. In fact, the Bible celebrates that diversity within being male or female. Yeah. Yeah, I loved your I loved your example of David and his, his how he does not fit into into what we do. You open one of your chapters with, with a little sketch of David and you totally got me. I did not recognize the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. 
in the book, you also talk about how a lot of those gender stereotypes that are not biblical, but are simply cultural actually are being resurrected by people on the left in the transgender conversation and how they can actually create some of these, uh, some, some gender dysphoria perhaps. So that, that's an interesting rabbit hole that I don't think we have time to go down right now, but just, just thought I'd, I'd mm-hmm. note that. Um, I want to get to kind of the, the crux of the matter here, which, you know, you already mentioned, which is, you know, if, if your gender identity is different than your biological sex, which wins, like which, which is, go- which should you go f- with biblically? Um, so can, can you give us like your, your position there, what you think the biblical teaching on that question is, and while you're at it, maybe try to kind of steel man some of the best arguments against your position and respond to them as well. That's great. Yeah. Um, so let, for the sake of clarity, I'll state my position and then I will, then I will refer to maybe some of the uh, counter arguments. Um, but when I state my position, I want people to know that it took me years of research and thinking to arrive at it. I didn't just begin with this assumption and defend it. Like I did explore this conversation much more thoroughly. And, and I don't want to just believe something because that's what I assume. I want to believe it because I've exhausted all the uh, possible options and gone with the one with the most evidence. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I do think biological sex determines whether we are male or female. It's, it feels almost circular, but it's, I think it's a, uh, I mean, the terms, again, humans are a sexually dimorphic species. The terms we've given to those two categories are male and female. So by definition, in a sense, biological sex determines whether you're male or female. Um, Beyond that, um, how we respond to that fact of reality can be psychologically, relationally complicated, but that doesn't, I don't think that, I I think it's, it's, um, would be a really hard case to say that if you are clearly male, then that is somehow off. Like if something's off in our human nature, we see the offness, you know, we see, you know, somebody's born with um, one leg. We're like, okay, well, homo sapiens are a two-legged species. We can clearly identify that something here is is off. This is not the, the normal way, but it's, you can identify that. But if somebody is clearly biologically male, what evidence do we have to say that this is not actually who they were intended to be? Um, now, the counter arguments, there's a, a several biblical counter arguments that I deal with in the book. I have a whole chapter on kind of biblical counter arguments like the eunuch. You know, what about the eunuch? You know, you have males and females and then eunuchs, you know, and eunuchs were um, biological males who were either castrated or infertile um, or, again, didn't match up to the cultural expectations of masculinity because they were, you know, had maybe a, a deformity um, in their sexual anatomy, or maybe they were castrated after after birth. Um, uh, but again, that doesn't mean the culture would say you're not a real man. Look at you, you know, you can't even father kids anymore. You know, well, I don't think Jesus is like embracing that <laughs> thing to say, yeah, eunuchs, you're not really a man. Like, no, they are they are male. In fact, a few verses before Jesus talks about eunuchs, he talks about male and female. God created them. So I, I don't think um, just simply citing the eunuch changes anything that, that I've said so far. And then there's other passages we can deal with. Um, scientifically, probably the, the strongest counter argument is what psychologists call the brain sex theory. Um, that some people say, I don't think it's that accurate, but some people would say that the brain is set, is sexed like the body is. So you have male and female bodies. You also have male and female brains. 
So from a Christian perspective, if that's true, and again, I don't think that's accurate, but if it was true, you could say that somebody through the fall or whatever, some wires got crossed because of our sin nature and somebody had a male body and a female brain or vice versa. Um, the research on brain sex theory, just from a scientific perspective, I, I don't, I think while on a general level, uh, male and female brain patterns, there's some general differences there. Um, but there, there are differences on, st- in terms of statistical averages, and I, I don't want to get too far down in the weeds, but it's like, are men taller than women? You would say, well, yes, but not every man is taller than every single woman. Like these are statistical averages. Um, same thing with kind of brain structure and brain patterns. Like these are generalities. So if you have a male who feels like he has a female brain, he might be more feminine in his interests and desires and whatever, and his, you know, everything that's affected by his brain, but that doesn't determine whether he's a woman or not. You can be a feminine male and still be very hundred percent male. Um, and then some people kind of throw out, you know, what if somebody has a female soul and a male body that that one's a little less persuasive to me, but some people try to argue on a more spiritual level, you know, there, there's a feminine essence to this person, but it's like, again, at the end of the day, it seems like we're just relying on stereotypes, um, Mm -hmm. to determine whether we are a man or not, which ends up becoming a very, very, yeah, this is where you referenced, you know, where some more progressive leaning people are actually resurrecting a very conservative understanding of human nature, you know, like, yeah. So I ask people who, you know, if I say, okay, you, you, you feel like this person is a male with a female brain, describe to me why you think their brain is female. Well, they, this, this male, you know, cries a lot in movies and they don't like sports and, you know, they, they're interested in, you know, more artistic things. I'm like, do you hear what you're saying? Like, I'm a female. (laughs) You're using, yeah, you're using this, yeah, (laughs) using the stereotype to determine whether this person's a man or not, which is what, conservatives did for the last hundred years, which is, which is why the people who are most op- opposed to brain sex theory or this kind of sexed soul theory are radical feminists <laughs> because they've worked so hard to deconstruct this very male centric understanding of what it means to be a true woman. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think when we come into, into a biblical perspective and you do this well in your podcast, in your book, we actually recognize that Christians, whether or not we always have, because we recognize that that who we are is deeper than our our stereotypical preferences or lack thereof, that we're more than just male or female, that we're we are more than that biological reality. We're children of God. We actually have an answer to some of that. We can actually say it doesn't matter if you like to crochet and drink tea. God still loves you. And it doesn't matter if you are a eunuch. It doesn't matter if you are intersex. God still loves you. And he draws that, draws you to himself, regardless of how you fit in. And and you've done a lot of talking about this. I think we've talked about it on the podcast, Titus, where I think our stereotypes about, you know, biblical womanhood and biblical manhood have, have really damaged us and in a sense pushed people towards saying, well, if I don't fit in your binary, not Mm-hmm. not sexual male, sexual female, but your binary of female of femininity and masculinity. I don't have a place here. That's, that's so wrong. And I think the transgender conversation gives us a gift 
in helping to examine our own harmful stereotypes about gender in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you said it better. Yeah, that's uh, couldn't say it any better. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah. I'm kind of ripping stereotypes off of you. Are, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I'm, I'm glad you brought it back to the church because I do think the church can unintentionally, sometimes very intentionally, yeah. baptize these cultural expectations of masculinity and femininity in pseudo biblical water. Right? I mean, we we do. And a lot of people that these stereotypes exist in the church and just anybody who's been to a men's or women's retreat knows what I'm talking about. You know, like they, um, I've talked to many people who don't fit the stereotypical pattern of masculinity or femininity, and they often don't want to go to our men's or women's retreats. <laughs> they, they don't say it out loud or whatever, but when I, when I talk about these things, I see a lot of the third of the room, you know, shaking their head like, yeah, I would never go to women's retreats. I feel like less of a woman because, I would rather play pickup basketball than arts and crafts. Nothing against arts and crafts, nothing, whatever, or like talking about, you know, changing diapers or whatever. That's a great calling. And I'm not, that's great, but that's not for every single woman. And when we make people feel like less of a woman or man because they don't fit the stereotypes, that's, that's not a, that's not a good place to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, let's let's finish off here by bringing up the question that will jolt everyone awake again if they've been dozing off. <laughs> Should we use the preferred pronouns of transgender persons? What do you say, Preston? So I spent 10 pages in my book wrestling with this j- just to let people know that there is a um, a complicated discussion to be had here. Don't just give a, anybody who has a knee jerk, yes or no on this. Mm -hmm. I just, you got to think through it really think through what both sides are saying. So I think there's good godly people on both sides. I do having thought through it, I'll take the view of what I call pronoun hospitality. Yes. I use somebody's pronouns. Um, and I, there's several arguments I can give. Um, but I want to, in general, you know, in general, I want to meet people where they're at and language is shared social space. So for those on the video, you know, I'm holding up my arms here. You know, if you have like person A over here, the person A has a certain worldview and person B has a certain worldview. Well, language exists. Language is the bridge between these two humans with different worldviews. And so sometimes language is being used differently by different people. So a person A says this pronoun refers to my gender identity and not my biological sex and person b says no all pronouns refer to sex not gender well here we have an example of a clash right of of worldviews well who language is shared social space like we have to kind of come to some um not agreement but like we have to meet people where they're at otherwise we're not gonna be able to communicate to anybody with a different worldview than than us so so yeah i do think that there's a general pattern of God meeting us where we're at, incarnating, becoming human, taking on our language, um, even something as as nitty gritty as Koine Greek, you know. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think if you want any chance of a relationship with a trans person who is who has pronouns that don't match their biological sex, then I would say use those pronouns, meet them where they're at. Um, otherwise, there's going to be pretty much no chance of any kind of relationship. I'm I'm with Preston, um, but Drew, you told me not to press you on this, so <laughs> the audience will, well, will have to uh, be in the dark. Well, let me let me push back just a little tiny sure. bit to yeah. to have you have you flesh this out. Um, yeah. 
the the argument I hear most often for not using preferred pronouns is that it's helping them buy into a lie. And your response right. to if I'm hearing you correctly is, no, I'm not referring to their their sexual identity. I'm referring to their gender identity. Is yes. that accurate? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They, they and, and I. I think that's a good argument. It's a, again, there's good arguments on both sides. I don't just because I gave one reason why I hold the one view doesn't mean mm-hmm. that I don't think there's good points raised by the other side. I think that's a good point. Like this person's obviously wrestling with maybe a psychological condition. Um, why, why promote that? Shouldn't we try to move them away from that? If you talk to and I actually did a, a, a totally anecdotal survey, but um ask like five or six different trans people. If somebody uses your pronouns, what does that mean to you? Not a single one, not a big survey, but not a single one says, oh yeah, I Mm -hmm. assumed that they um, believed I really was a man trapped in a woman's body or whatever. Like for them, they're like, I know this person doesn't understand me. I know this person doesn't probably agree with some things I, I believe, but wow, I just took it as a act of courtesy, you know? And it really, I was really impressed. I was so impressed that a Christian would actually not just demand that I agree with them on everything, but would actually honor me enough to use my pronouns that is are significant to me. So not a single one was like, <laughs> so yeah, this- they reinforced my beliefs about human nature. Like they didn't that practically, although it's a good argument, I think, I think practically that's not, it doesn't actually do that in, in real life. Yeah. So the shocking bottom line is that actually the more important thing to do is to be in relationship with people and to recognize that there's not one size fits all solution for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Being, yeah. And, um, I, I ask another trans friend of mine, like, cause I, I, I push back all the time with myself and views I hold and even something I think I'm leaning in this direction. I want to play devil's advocate. And so I, um, uh, my trans friend of mine were having this conversation. I, and I said, but, but what about fact, fact that they are biologically male or female? Like this is a basic statement of reality. Is it, I, I, I don't want to just uh, like live in some alternative realities because that's helping them or something. And and mm-hmm. I, I didn't put it in such crude terms and I wouldn't recommend that either. But, and she said, my friend said, like, you know what? No, that's that's a great point. No, I would totally agree with that. You don't want to be a science denier, but mm-hmm. it's only in relationship with the person would you have the relational collateral um, to be able to help them to embrace maybe a, an aspect of reality. But guess what? You're not going to have that relational opportunity if you just refuse to use their pronouns up front. So um, if you really do want this person to embrace their biological sex and you want to be an agent and helping them do that using their pronouns will be um, necessary for you to be in relationship with the person to help them to embrace their god-given identity i'm sure anyone who's listening to this who disagreed with you has been fully convinced now so (laughs) it's great um i mean it's this isn't an issue that people hold strong opinions on at all so shouldn't be much of an issue um send the emails to preston not to us um thanks so much preston for coming on and talking about this um yeah i've I've been listening to your podcast like i've said before for a long time and 
will continue listening and, and your work has, has really impacted my life. So everybody go check out Preston's podcast, Theology in the Raw, and uh, read his books. Uh, Embodied is, is the latest book on transgender, and you also have written about same-sex marriage, um, the LGB part of the acronym as well. Um, so... I'm sure if, you, if they Google your name, they'll find all of your resources. But thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today, Preston. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Take care. So we just heard from Preston, and now we are joined by someone who is no stranger to the show. She is the editor-in-chief of KingdomOutpost.org and an online Mennonite feminazi provocateur. How's that for a bio? Is that an accurate description? Um, <laughs> I object to the Mennonite part. Okay, but the feminazi is fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's not the part I expected you to object to, but hey. It's, it's whatever floats your boat. Um, so yeah, we wanted to pull you in here and talk a little bit about your journey. And I know you, you said that you're not necessarily a, a representative of folks who've experienced gender um, dysphoria necessarily, but um, some of your journey might intersect with this conversation a little bit. So I'm just going to let you take it away. Oh, yeah. Um Gender dysphoria, I was looking up the definition on Wikipedia, and maybe I will just pull it up now. Sure. It's, it's, I think that if there is, a, like you say, there is, you know, some maybe overlap with uh, gender identity. It says mm-hmm. here on uh, on website that it's a feeling of discomfort or distress that might occur in people whose gender identity differs from their sex assigned at birth. So uh, it it's just a condition. And, you know, it's a psychological c- condition. I remember uh, going through kind of like a couple of years where I just really, really, really wanted to be a guy. Like, I was um, quite young, maybe like 10, 11, 12, and I clearly remember it um, because that was a big part of my life back then I just didn't see a way forward I especially did not want to become like a teenage girl that was like the most horrible thing imaginable so (laughs) we all agree So yeah, I, I just remember that. I remember feeling like it, you know, maybe maybe I would just wake up one day and I would just be a guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know that I've talked to many friends, like women. Maybe so happened my friends are people who experienced this too. But yeah, I've talked to people who felt like some some level of this that like gender identity um feeling like you didn't fit it you know (laughs) yeah Yeah. oh 
Yeah, what was that because of certain stereotypes about women um, in in your culture, or kind of why why did you want to be a boy? Well, I I think there were some stereotypes, and stereotypes still make me like really angry today. I still get triggered if someone says that you can't do this or you yeah like I faced a lot. Uh, of stereotypes even when I got older and didn't struggle with this anymore I still I still get really mad like if someone says a woman shouldn't exercise or lift weights or just like you can't do that you're a girl then I'd be like I'd be mad (laughs) yeah it but I think part of it was not having uh not having an idea of what it meant to like I didn't have a a vision I didn't have a, a a purpose for all I could see was just like there wasn't there wasn't a good reason to be female other than just have, like being restricted and not not being seen as like as capable <laughs> yeah I know for me I I don't know that I ever wanted to be a girl but it, it I did also struggle with expectations that you know I'm supposed to be into hunting and you know fixing houses and many things that I have absolutely no interest in but the way I dealt with it is I just I doubled down on on like just wearing bright pink shirts and um, being really annoyed by those stereotypes and just not caring about them and being like like trying to bust them and it kind of worked for me so um but yeah what what was it that kind of helped you work through that Um, how did you get to a point where you were at peace with the the um the gender that that you were assigned at birth um so i then encountered sort of like conservative complementarianism which was kind of like gender extremes and i kind of had like uh, an identity where i wanted the best of both worlds like it was literally a situation where they were like girls can't do hiking or play sports like it was even i guess a little bit more extreme in some ways than your uh than your mennonite culture because at least girls still play volleyball right i would want to play basketball or soccer and then people would be like girls can't do that and (laughs) I just found it ridiculous, but at the same time, there were, you know, there, there, were, there was like, uh, oh, let me think. <laughs> there were, there were these like, at the same time, there are these like feminine extremes being, being promoted. And I kind of jumped into that. I thought I would give it a try. In a sense, I'm still kind of the, the same today. Like I still embrace some form of like feminine extreme but i'm also like i'm also not cool with the whole like women are supposed to be only one way or just only gentle or only nurturing and not like tough (laughs) i think there's a lot of biblical basis for saying that you can be tough and you can be um strong and still be a, a woman and i I guess I want to try to explore that part of it. I kind of see um, ex- any any kind of gender um, genderish 
kind of characteristic as being something that's like in the image of God. Because God made male and female, so people are just small representations of his image. You know, just incomplete representations, if you will, finite. Whereas in Jesus dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So to me, the idea of being conformed to Christ gives me a vision that is bigger than just the Proverbs 31 woman or Titus 2 or Timothy 5. It's a vision for being conformed to the image of Christ. And that tells me that since since male and female kind of characteristics, like the stereotypical characteristics that you get from hormones, like oxytocin in females, kind of makes them more caring and nurturing. Uh, testosterone in males kind of makes them stronger and more, I don't know, uh, courageous, resilient, etc. Uh, those kind of characteristics, these are just small expressions of the greater reality which is being conformed to the image of Christ. Um, because when, you know, it says, when he appears, we shall be, we shall be like him. It says that, you know, the goal is not to become more feminine or more masculine. It's to become more like Christ. And maybe in Christ, I mean, we do see like the fruit of the spirit is not is not what the Greco-Roman society would consider to be like, oh, athletic, tough soldier, military type ideals. It's like love, joy, peace patience, kindness, gentleness, it, it, there's some, they're not, these are not feminine characteristics, they're just Christ characteristics, they are, I, yeah, so, and then in, in Christ, women also become rulers and inheritors and, and soldiers, you know, you shall endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, I feel like the, the idea of being conformed and becoming more like Jesus gives me a gives me a vision that is so much greater than these smaller petty ideals that we might have that like the perfect woman is like this or the perfect man is like that mm -hmm. yeah and that, that's something we touched on with Preston as well that these stereotypes they're they're not biblical for the most part and they actually can create gender dysphoria and and it's interesting to see the left sometimes resurrecting these stereotypes in the transgender conversation, but that's a whole nother rabbit trail. I, I just I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your experiences and you know some of those thoughts from scripture as well. It's it's already been a long podcast with, with everything we've heard from Preston, so better wrap it up, but I'm sure you'll be back on soon. <laughs> Do you, do you have any good do you have any good plugs for the Kingdom Outpost yet before we let you go? Yeah, check out the Kingdom Outpost. It's a hub for articles, videos, podcasts. We are actually working on our next um, non-violence kind of apologetics video. I did you could link maybe the article that I wrote about cruciformity and Christ and gender theology I'm kind of debunking the idea like we see in evangelicalism that like to be male is to be like this dominant authoritarian and to be female is to be like this soft weak subjugated type entity and Christ kind of dispels all of that on the cross thankfully that's just an evangelicalism that that exists yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And as I say in every episode, we will see you next time. That Jesus Podcast is part of the Kingdom Outpost Podcast Network. For more podcasts, articles, and other resources, go to kingdomoutpost.org.